Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 130 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach from the NHS Test and Trace program. We then have news that the EGBA has made a statement about the impact on online gaming of there being no long-term data adequacy agreement between the EU and the UK following the UK leaving the EU on the 31st of December 2020. We then have an update on the British Airways data breach and affected customers have been given a further two months to join the legal class action. We then have a report that data from Foxton's estate agents is now believed to be available on the dark web. And staying on the dark web, we look at the situation where phone numbers from the Facebook data breach are being used by fraudsters to try and obtain other information on people and therefore do identity theft of those persons. We then have news of a data breach at French data protection provider Stormshield. And we then have a look at the ICO code of practice for sites which are targeting children. The code of practice will begin to be enforced from September 2021, so it's important that you start putting steps in place to comply with that code now if your site is one that's aimed at children or could be accessed by children. We then have thoughts from the EDPB and the EDPS on proposed changes to standard contractual clauses. We then continue our tutorial series with a example of a data breach and we ask you to consider whether the data breach should be reported to the ICO or your equivalent authority or not. We then travel to Ireland where an Irish councillor is threatening to test the limits of GDPR. And finally this week we have news of a data breach at adult review site escortreviews.com. So as always a wide range of articles for you this week here on the GDPR Weekly Show. We hope you find the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, as always, please just email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do value all the feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into future episodes of the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. We begin this week with news of a data breach from NHS Test and Trace. Claire Hyman a 47-year-old lady from East Sussex, got two texts from the NHS with another woman's name, date of birth and COVID test result. Claire Hyman has branded the data breach as extremely worrying. She said the text message she received from NHS Test and Trace contained the person's name, date of birth and COVID test result. Claire said, I knew it was a data breach straight away. I wouldn't be happy if I was the woman concerned. They shouldn't be sending personal sensitive data like that to the wrong person. It's extremely worrying. After being poorly for two weeks with body aches, extreme headaches and a loss of taste, Claire suspected she might have COVID-19 when some friends tested positive over Christmas period. She got a coronavirus test done at a walk-in site near her home on January the 10th and received a negative result the next day. Claire admitted she was reluctant to get a test because she was worried her data could be misused. She also expressed concern for the woman whose test results she'd received who now has no way of knowing what the outcome was. She added, she's probably self-isolating and doesn't know if she's okay to go out or not. Open Mics Group, a data protection charity, described the data breach as potentially dangerous and added that it risks undermining efforts to stop the spread of COVID-19. 
A Department of Health and Social Care spokesperson said NHS testing traces processing over 400,000 tests a day for more than 800 test centres and mobile units with the vast majority of people reporting no issues with the process. Everyone who tests positive is contacted directly and informed of their results either by text or email. Anyone who has not received a result from an in-person or home test after five days is advised to call 119. The spokesperson went on to say that they were aware that there was an occasional data breach because of the sheer volume of data that they're trying to handle in such a short period of time and that any data breaches reported to them are investigated and where necessary reported to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. It's hard to judge from an outside viewpoint just how many data breaches there are in the test and trace system, but it's something we will keep a careful eye on and will no doubt return to in later episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that over the last few episodes, we've mentioned about the difficulties caused potentially to data transfers now that the UK has totally exited from the European Union. Well, this week, the European Gaming and Betting Association made a statement. They stated that the Brexit terms and conditions fall short of safeguarding online gambling, mirroring the concerns of wider digital sectors. The interim deal to continue data transfers between the EU and the UK will expire in less than six months' time and there's no certainty as to what will happen next. The Brussels-based gaming industry trade body has warned the European Union and the UK governments that current Brexit arrangements carry operational and business concerns for the online gambling sector. The association said in a statement that Brexit brings a host of complications for online gambling companies, many of which will develop over the coming months. This is particularly true for the crucial issue of online data flows, where there will be a need for a long-term arrangement agreed between the EU and the UK. Any UK-based online gambling company which manages, stores or processes data in the EU will still need to be fully compliant with the EU General Data Protection Regulation 2016. EGBA last year published an industry code of conduct on data protection to help companies meet their GDPR obligations. Martin Heiser, Secretary-General of EGBA, said, Without a long-term agreement which secures the smooth flow of data, online gambling companies operating in both jurisdictions would need to decide, amongst other things, where best to locate their data hubs to ensure as little disruption as possible to their everyday operations. Irrespective of any future agreement on data flows between two jurisdictions, we encourage any UK-based company which wishes to continue operating in the EU to sign up to the EGBA's total conduct on data protection as a means to demonstrate that they are fully compliant with GDPR. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you will know that in episodes 5, 6, 12, 32, 49, 60, 82, 103 and 113, we've mentioned about the data breach at British Airways and their ongoing penalty and the ongoing civil claims against them for damages by two significant class actions. Well, this week, victims of two British Airways data breaches back in 2018 have been granted an additional two months to file a compensation claim after the group litigation order window was extended. The claims relate to two breaches recorded back in 2018. Between August and September 2018, it was revealed that 380,000 transactions were compromised and later, 185,000 customers were notified that their personal financial details were exposed between April and July 2018. 
Data compromised included payment card information such as card numbers, expiry dates and in tens of thousands of cases, the CVV security code three digits on the back of the card, as well as customers' names, billing addresses and email addresses. Evidence has been given by the defendant's solicitor at the GLO application hearing that the total number of unique payment cards that may have been affected is 429,420. Last month, consumer action law firm Your Lawyers, which is leading the class action, reported that the UK-based airline is planning to begin settlement discussions that could lead to a compensation payout of up to £3 billion. However, BA responded with a statement continuing to deny liability and setting out their intention to fight the litigation. The original deadline to join the group litigation order was April 3rd, but this has now been moved to June 3rd, 2021. Beyond that date, affected customers will no longer be able to automatically join the group litigation. The extension has been granted to allow new claimants to prepare their cases following a huge surge in sign-ups recently. Your lawyers has estimated that the average compensation award for each claimant could be around £6,000, but with individual payments ranging from £500 to £15,000. This would leave BA with a total bill of up to £2.4 billion. Aman Joel, director at Your Lawyers in a statement, said... With affected customers given an additional two months to join the GLO, they should act without delay. It is concerning that BA continues to defend the litigation despite the fact their legal representatives have written to the court to express their intentions to enter into settlement negotiations. The impact and therefore the value of claims arising from this breach cannot be understated. Victims can suffer considerable distress when personal and sensitive information is exposed and they are at risk of being targeted for fraud and theft. This is a serious issue and many of the thousands of clients we represent have suffered severe consequences after a breach event. Many have fallen victim to fraud and have been forced to change how they use services forever. It is time for the airline to publicly acknowledge what they must privately accept, that they are liable and will have to pay compensation. And so this case rumbles on and we will continue to bring you regular updates on the British Airways data breach and its consequences in further episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Back in episode 114 of the GDPR show, we brought you news about a data breach at estate agents group Foxton's. This week, the IE newspaper in an article claimed that thousands of customers' financial details held by Foxton's groups are freely accessible on the so-called dark web. In the exclusive article, the I newspaper alleges that the agency did not take action when it was informed last month that financial and personal information was accessible on the dark web following an attack on its data some months earlier. However, the companies insisted that only Alexander Hall, its mortgage broking business, was affected and that no sensitive data had been stolen. It had reported itself to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. The I newspaper says an investigation found that more than 16,000 card details, addresses and private correspondence, including details of fees paid, are freely accessible by potential fraudsters. The files have been viewed 15,073 times since being published online three months ago. The data appears to have been taken in a hatchet attack on Foxton's back in October. The eye goes on to claim Foxton's group was informed by the concerned client that its customers' card details had been leaked on nine months three weeks ago, but failed to inform either potential victims or authorities. In a statement, Foxton's group has responded, Alexander Hall, Foxton's mortgage broking business, was subject to a malware attack in October 2020 that affected a number of other organisations. Some IT systems were affected for several days but were restored without significant disruption to customers. All necessary disclosures have been made and full details of the attack were provided to the FCA and the ICO at the time. We are satisfied the attack did not result in the loss of any data that could be damaging to customers and believe that the FCA and ICO are satisfied with our response. Foxton said, We are 
forensically been through all the stolen data and confirm it is both old and incomplete, therefore not usable by a third party and not possible for it to cause financial loss or harm to those affected customers. If there's any update on this, either from the I newspaper, Foxton's estate agents or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. People are being warned that data stolen in a Facebook data breach way back in 2019 has now started to appear on the dark web. The data affects around 500 million users and it's understood that someone is using the phone numbers on the dark web to retrieve Facebook identities and vice versa. Facebook, in a statement, said the data lost is several years old. However, anyone still using their old telephone numbers from before the data leak was fixed may still have their details accessible. The National Cyber Security Centre, NCSC, is now urging anyone who thinks they were affected to get in touch with Facebook and follow the NCSC guidance on its website for dealing with data breaches. The agency said we would also advise that you install the latest software and app updates at your earliest opportunity and to turn on automatic updates for your devices and software that offer it. Their advice comes just days after online dating service meetmindful.com revealed they'd also suffered a data breach. In a statement, Meet Mindful said it was deeply sorry for the breach which had fixed and only affected members who'd signed up prior to 2020. French cybersecurity firm StormShield, a major provider of security services and network security devices to the French government, said on Thursday that a threat actor had gained access to one of its customer support portals and stolen information from some of its clients. StormShield is also reporting that attackers managed to steal parts of the source code for the StormShield network security firewall, a product certified to be used in sensitive French government networks as part of the intrusion. StormShield said it's investigating the incident with French cybersecurity agency ANSSI, the Agency Nationale de la Sécurité des Systèmes d'Information, which is currently accessing the breach's impact on government systems. In a message posted on its website, StormShield said, As of today, the in-depth analysis carried out with the support of the relevant authorities has not identified any evidence of illegitimate modification of the code, nor of any one of StormShield's products in operation being compromised. It's understood that inside the French government, the Stormfield incident is currently being treated as a major security breach. In its own press release, ANSSI officials said they'd put Stormfield SNS and SNI products under observation for the duration of the investigation. But in addition to reviewing the SNS source code, Stormfield said it also took other steps to prevent other forms of attacks in case the intruders had access to other parts of its infrastructure. The French company said it also replaced the digital certificates they used prior to the incident to sign SNS software updates. New updates have been made available to customers and partners that products can work with this new certificate, the company said. Furthermore, the French security firm said it also reset passwords for its tech support portal, which the attackers had breached, and the Stormfield Institute portal used for customer training courses, which wasn't breached, but the company decided to reset the passwords as a preventative measure. Based on the results of its current investigation, Stormfield said the intruders appeared to have owned, also accessed personal and technical data for some of its customers. All the support tickets and technical exchanges and accounts concerned have been reviewed and the results have been communicated to our customers, Stormfield said. It's understood that about 2% of Stormfield accounts have been affected in the security breach, which is around 200 accounts out of more than 10,000. When we receive further updates on this, either from the French security body or from Stormfield itself, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Witchy Show.
This September sees the ICO's Code of Practice for websites dealing with young people coming into force and actually be enforced by the ICO. The code was first introduced in September 2020 and it's important that if your website serves children or young people then it needs to make sure that you comply with this new code of conduct. The code sets out how the ICO intends to interpret the data protection principles under GDPR and the UK's Privacy of Electronic Communications Regulations, PECA, and has reminded industry that the potential fines could be up to £17.5 million, or 4% of the company's turnover, whichever is the highest. The code itself consists of 15 standards to which all subject online services will need to adhere, all while keeping in mind her holistic, risk-based approach that considers children's best interests. Perhaps one of the first important things to understand is that under the terms of the new code, a child is any user under 18. This is a significant change to current legislation in the UK which says a child is someone under 13 and the general standard across Europe for a child being someone under 16. The code does not change the minimum age for data processing in the UK, which remains at 13, but separately asserts that children require special protections online until they are 18. The code requires companies to treat children differently depending on their age group, and the age groups it has defined are 0 to 5, 6 to 9, 10 to 12, 13 to 15, and 16 to 18. An example could be that if you serve children across those age ranges, you need to devise your privacy policy so that it's understandable by children in each age range. Now that needs careful thought, and if you need help with that, please do contact us via the details coming up at the end of this article. The code sets the UK on a collision course with the US Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, which is perhaps one of the most well-known and enforced children's privacy laws in the world. Because under the UK code, analytics and data collection for service enhancement can no longer be collected by default. The ICO says that holding that collection of personal data in order to improve, enhance or personalise your users' online experience is beyond the provision of your core service and requires separate consent. Combine this with the ICO's position that consent for non-essential processing must be provided by the UK's child's parent where the child is under 13, and this provision will likely to have a major business impact on the practical ability of children's apps websites to perform analytics or otherwise use its user data from UK residents to improve its service. The ICO does, though, recognise that there may be some limited examples of services where behavioural advertising is part of core service, e.g. a voucher or money-off service. One of the code standards is a requirement to always consider the best interests of the child when making design decisions around data. According to the code, determining the best interest of a child is a holistic analysis incorporating a variety of factors such as the child's rights to freedom of expression, thought, conscience, religion, association, access to information, age-appropriate play, protection against economic, sexual or other forms of exploitation, and so the code goes on. Child privacy laws and enforcement have traditionally overlapped with other child protection initiatives, a good example being the Italian Data Protection Authority, which recently placed a temporary ban on TikTok following the death of a 10-year-old girl from Palermo who suffocated after participating in a choking challenge on TikTok's platform. It's also notable that TikTok has been banned by the Indian government for activities deemed prejudicial to sovereignty and integrity of India. Nevertheless, the code makes clear that ICO intends to use GDPR and PECA 
and associated penalties as the enforcement hook for just about any detrimental impact on a child that can be traced back to their data. For example, the ICO says it would consider the following activities to be violations enforceable under the new code. Marketing practices that make direct exhortations to children to buy or persuade their parents to buy advertised products. Mechanics that encourage children to have excessive screen time. Failures to adequately police or enforce the service's self-imposed community guidelines. And any practice that is contrary to established guidelines on children's marketing, including showing ads for music content with explicit lyrics or for foods that are high in fat or sugar. It's worth remembering too that the Code gives children privacy rights against their parents. The Code recognises that children have the right to know when their parents are monitoring them. So you need to think about how you're going to build that into your app or website if that's happening. So what steps do we recommend you take now? First is double check your service's audience and the steps you take to screen out and or protect children. Secondly, make sure that all optional data selection sharing settings are off by default for all UK users under 18 years of age. Work towards child-friendly privacy disclosures in your privacy policy and just-in-time notices. Ensure your documentation is in place and consult with children where possible. So that means consulting with children, potentially, when you carry out a data privacy impact assessment. Consider how children's privacy fits into your larger privacy planning. And it's recommended that you have an external audit to check your compliance with the code. And if you would like us to perform an audit, we'd be delighted to do that. Just contact us via the details coming up at the end of this article. It was hoped, of course, that GDPR would almost draw a line in the sand with data processing, but the new codes on children are adding complications to the mix, as if it wasn't complicated enough with the UK leaving the EU. For example, we know that the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, is working on its own children's code, which is still in its drafting stage until March 2021. And we'll no doubt bring you an update on that in an article on the GDPR Weekly Show later this year. So if you need our help in getting your service ready for the new code, or you'd like us to perform an audit to check that you're compliant with the new code, then please get in touch with us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. Following the SREMS 2 case, which we've mentioned several times on GDPR Weekly Show, the EDPB and the EDPS have now issued a joint opinion on data processing standard contractual clauses. To give a little bit of background, last November, the European Commission published data processing standard contractual clauses in draft form and launched a public consultation to solicit feedback from stakeholders. On January the 14th, the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, and the European Data Protection Supervisor, the EDPS, issued a joint opinion in which they offered comments and suggestions with regard to the European Commission's posed data processing standard contractual clauses. At this point in time, it is unclear whether the European Commission will incorporate all of the comments and suggestions put forward by the EDPB and EDPS in its final version of the data processing standard contractual clauses. Nonetheless, the EDPB-EDPS joint opinion provides useful insight into their thinking when it comes to data processing agreements. What's key is that they make clear that data processing agreements that merely restate the mandatory provisions in Article 28 of GDPR are unlikely to be sufficient. In the opinion of the EDPB and EDPS, DPA should include additional provisions and clarifications as to how the corresponding control of processor obligations will be fulfilled in practice. A few examples have been provided by the EDPB and EDPS. 
As regards to the controller's choice to have all personal data deleted or returned at the end of the agreement, as by Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph G of GDPR, DPA should specify that the controller can modify that choice throughout the life cycle of the DPA and upon termination. Another example is that if the DPA provides the processor with the possibility to propose an auditor with a view to complying with Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph H of GDPR, the DPA should make it clear that the ultimate decision about the auditor will be left with the data controller. And another example is that if the processor has notified the controller that its instructions infringe the GDPR, as by Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph H, the DPA could stipulate, for instance, that the processor is entitled to suspend the implementation of the controller's instructions until the controller confirms, amends or withdraws its instruction. They also point out that data processing agreements often focus on the processor's obligations and requirements under GDPR, and they say that care must be taken that the DPA also sets out clearly the rights and obligations of the data controllers. In the view of the EDPB and EDPS, it is, for example, advisable to stipulate that the controller has the right and obligation to make decisions about the purposes and means of the processing that the processor will carry out on behalf of the controller. Also, in some scenarios, and they're thinking here of remote hosting services, the DPA should impose an obligation on the controller to provide all useful information that the processor needs in order to assess and ensure that appropriate data security measures are put in place. The EDPB and EDPS also say that when there are more than two parties to a data processing agreement, the EDPB and the EDPS say that the DPA should detail the allocation responsibilities and clarify which data processing is carried out by which processors on behalf of which controller or controllers, and for what purposes. The DPA should eliminate any confusion as to the qualification and role of each party with respect to a given processing activity. According to the EDPB and EDPS, this is necessary for the parties to be able to determine who is processing which personal data from whom and for what purpose and what instructions are applicable and who is allowed to give instructions. Any ambiguity would make it impossible for controllers or processors to fulfil their obligations under the accountability principle of GDPR. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time. We continue now with our occasional series looking at data breaches and when or if they should be reported to the ICO or the relevant data protection authority in the country where you're listening to this. In this week's example, we look at the situation where one of the computers used by an agricultural company was exposed to a ransomware attack and its data was encrypted by the attacker. The company is using the expertise of an external cybersecurity company to monitor their network logs tracing all data flows leaving the company, including outbound email available. After analysing the logs and the data, the other detection systems have collected the internal investigation. Aided by the cybersecurity company, they determined that the perpetrator only encrypted the data without exfiltrating it. The logs show no outward data flow in the time frame of the attack. The personal data affected by the breach relates to the employees and clients of the company, a few dozen individuals together. No special categories of data were affected. No backup was available in the electronic form. Most of the data was restored from paper backups. The restoration of the data took five working days and led to minor delays in delivery orders to customers. So let's look at this data breach. On the face of it, you'd think, well, that's okay. It needs entering into the company's data breach register. They've been able to restore the data. There was no real harm done. Maybe they should be encouraged to have a backup but the logs show no data being extracted, only that the data was encrypted, and therefore 
no further action needs to be taken. But you'd actually be wrong because the two key elements here which present an increased risk on this compared to the previous example we considered a couple of weeks ago is that A, there is no backup and B, the people who infiltrated the system encrypted the data which would imply that the data was held on the system unencrypted. So you've now got unencrypted data and no backup. Now in this instance they were able to restore the data by re-entering it from paper documents. However, the fact there was unencrypted data is the key here because sophisticated hackers will be able to access the log and modify it. So the log may well have originally shown that there was some outbound traffic, but you now can't see it because they've covered their tracks and modified the log on their way out. Now that's only a possibility, of course. It's also possible that someone just came on encrypted the data and then did nothing but that seems unlikely why would you bother to do that and so because of that risk because data may have been stolen then you would need to notify this particular case to the ICO now other than offering some guidance it's our experience that in this sort of scenario the ICO would be unlikely to take any enforcement action but they would issue some guidance and then check with you several months later that you'd implemented the guidance. And the two things here would obviously be encrypting the data when it's at rest and actually having an efficient backup system in place. But nonetheless, you would be expected to report this to the ICO. And if you didn't do so, potentially you could lay yourself open to penalties. So hopefully you found that example useful and we'll be repeating this with further examples in future weeks here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. To Ireland now and Kildare councillor, councillor Brendan Wise, is planning to challenge GDPR with the release of CCTV footage of people who've been fly-tipping in the authorities' area. At the Clare Maynooth Municipal District meeting on February 5th, Councillor Wise said he disagreed with the rules that you cannot name and shame litter offenders. Councillor Wise was speaking after a proposal by Councillor Dara Fitzpatrick that the council take immediate measures within the Clare Maynooth Municipal District to alleviate the problem of illegal dumping which has accelerated in recent months. Councillor Wise said he is considering posting on social media details of the offenders in breach of GDPR and see what happens. GDPR is not helping in this situation, he said. Council Executive Ken Kavana said that apart from other measures, there's still a need to change attitudes and behaviour to recognise that littering and dumping is antisocial and devalues the environment. The meeting heard that the council can use video footage from private citizens, but those who take footage have to be prepared to give evidence in court. Mr Kavana said the use of CCTV to target areas with high rates of illegal dumping has proven to be successful in specific circumstances. He said the council intends to maximise the use of cost-effective CCTV and subject to available finances and GDPR to extend the use of this technology where feasible. For serious littering instance, it's the council's policy to commence legal proceedings with a view to maximum fines possible being imposed by the court. The council will also request the assistance of the local guarder in situations where this is deemed necessary. So we wait and see whether Councillor Wise carries out his threat to put the details on social media. And if he does and there's any follow-up to the story, then we'll be sure to bring it to you in the next episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you happen to have an account with adult website escortreviews.com, you'd be best advised to change your password right away. 
A database containing information on more than 472,000 site members has been posted online. The database includes usernames, email addresses, IP addresses and account names for Yahoo, MSN and Stripe, all which can be used to identify members. In the site itself, members don't have to use their real names. The account passwords are encrypted using the MD5 hash algorithm, which dates from 1992 and is no longer considered safe to use. Passwords hashed using MD5 can often be easily decrypted and should be regarded as compromised. EscortReviews.com is a user-driven online forum on which escorts, i.e. sex workers, in the United States and Mexico post information about themselves and then their customers write about the quality of their experience with the sex workers. The site is currently offline, but a tashed version of the site from November promises that we have something for you, whether you're a male member seeking out new friends or a new lady on the scene looking to take advantage of our many opportunities to network, make new friends or connect with people. It's also noticed that the site appears to have been used in an old version of the V-Bulletin forum software that's known to have security flaws and hasn't been supported since 2017. So if you do have an account with escortreviews.com, our advice would, as always in these situations, change your password and obviously change your password anywhere else where you use the same password across the internet. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.